Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. I'm your host, Angel Donovan. We've been talking more recently about how consciously making an effort to decide what kind of dating, relationships, and sexual lifestyle is right for you can make a big difference to your satisfaction and happiness. We're continuing this thread today and looking at the topic of casual sex, which is basically sex outside of relationships, whether it's a one-night stand, whether it's friends with benefits or fuck-buddy relationships, affairs, or any other type of casual, non-committal hookup. It's only recently that some research has come out on the topic that goes against what the stereotypes have always said and we've kind of believed. The stereotype says that people in long-term stable relationships, like marriage, are happier and healthier And there's a fair amount of research to support that. So we had assumed that this meant that casual sex did not make us happier and healthier and so on. It turns out, though, that it's a bit more complicated than that. For some people, casual sex does make them happier. It makes them more confident. It's actually good for their well-being. For others, casual sex makes them less happy, less satisfied, less confident. It undermines their well-being. So you have to figure out which one you are or how to get this in alignment so that casual sex is a good thing for you if that's what you choose. So today we look at how you can know which of those you are and what you can do about it and if you can make a conscious choice to have more casual sex in a way that creates more well-being versus taking it away from you. To cover this topic today, we have Jana Vrangalova a PhD in development psychology from Cornwall University, where she studied how different aspects of sexuality, specifically casual sex and promiscuity, are linked to health and well-being. Today, she is an adjunct professor at the NYU Psychology Department, teaching on personality and social psychology. She has a twice-weekly column about casual sex on the reputable magazine Psychology Today and has published a number of studies in the area. She is also the founder of the Casual Sex Project, which is very interesting, and we'll talk a bit more about that in the interview. As you can see, both her research and other projects are all focused on this topic of casual sex. This really shows through in the interview. It's a great interview with lots of depth on the topic. As usual, to get the show notes, to get the transcript, to get the MP3 download of the show, and links to everything we mentioned, including Jana Vangalova's work, you can go to datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP. Six, eight. I'm Angel Donovan, and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships, to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better, step by step, episode by episode. So the Casual Sex Project, what is that about and how did it come about? Casual Sex Project is a website that I created for people to post their hookup stories, their actual real stories of one-night stands, friends with benefits, um, fuck buddies, whatever sort of sex they're having in the context of not a romantic long-term committed relationship. 
the reason for it was because we as a society have a very ambivalent relationship with casual sex. On the one hand, it seems to be everywhere around us and everyone seems to be having it. But on the other hand, we are being told that it's bad, it's wrong, we shouldn't be doing it, it's unhealthy. Um, yet there is very little actual discourse about what it is, what it looks like. A lot of people don't really have firsthand experience or uh, experience that their friends are having. So I thought it would be an interesting and valuable contribution to create a site where people can share these experiences. I think it, there's value in both people who are writing the stories and for those who are reading the stories. Yeah, totally. I love that kind of stuff. So how long has it been going and how successful has it been in terms of how many posts have you got up? So how many stories, basically, have you got up so far? It's been going since April uh, 2014, so a few months. And we've had about 750 stories at mm. this point. Mm -hmm. In the beginning, it was maybe a, one or two stories a day. But then uh, when the media got a hold of the project and when that happened, it kind of went viral, it went all over the world. Literally, media on all continents covered that story. And so we got a lot of views. We got like, I don't know, 500,000 views a month. People just started sending in a lot of stories. Yeah. And it's been really interesting to see because most of the time the discourse on casual sex is that this is something that college students do as if no one else does it. But this project allowed for people of all ages and races and all sociodemographic strata uh, all over the world to submit stories. So we literally have the stories from people who are in their 40s and 50s, even 60s and 70s, you mm. know, from all over the world. Uh, people who not just hetero um, stories, but gay guys and, and lesbian women and trans women and men and queer people. Um, so all sorts of demographics. Yes, it's great to get the variety. So uh, mm -hmm. just to the audience, if you have any casual sex stories, like, yeah, please go to the casual sex project. We'll put the links in the show notes and everything and put down your experiences and put down the truth because it's really helpful, insightful for other people to read it. And it's all anonymous, so you've got nothing to hide. It's just interesting and it's good for research. So what kind of research can you do? Are you worried about how truthful people are in their posting, for one thing? Yes. I mean, obviously, uh, there's no way for me to police that and know whether people are telling the truth or not. But I really hope they are because there are other places to post fantasy. I think the, the value of this is that these are real stories with all the good, the bad and the ugly uh, that happened. Some of the stories are great, but not everything is great. You know, there are always things that are awkward or complicated. And so it's, it's really the value of it is to show that complexity, to show the ambivalence that often can happen in these stories. And, you know, when you're writing down a fantasy uh, is one thing, but writing down a real experience can really help you make sense of that experience, especially with experiences that are not all just, oh, this is the, the most amazing thing that ever happened to me. But if there is some ambivalence or some negativity, um, then writing it down really helps you kind of work through it and learn from it as you're writing it down. And then also for people reading it, it, it really helps. And I've gotten a lot of feedback over the last few months of people saying that this has been really amazing being able to read all these stories and learn from other people's mistakes and also the good things that people have done, figure out my own relationship to casual sex or make sense of some of my own experiences through the lens of other people's. So I really hope that um, people are being truthful. Um, well, I'm sure, but just because it takes a little bit of effort, I mean, this questionnaire isn't super short, so right. I should think most people don't want to waste their time. There's probably a few people who think they're jokers and they're going to submit 
<laughs> anonymous crap. Yeah, my sense is that most of the stories are true because yes, it's not just one blank kind of um, text box where they can just write a, a whole fantasy story. Um, there's a number of questions that people have to answer about themselves. They are where they're from, and also very specific questions about the hookup that happened. And these questions are mostly taken from research studies on casual sex, both studies that I've done and other people have done. So it's kind of, in a way, taking what researchers do on this topic in a more confined way and putting it up there on the web for anyone to see and participate. Now, it's not exactly a research study. This is kind of a crowdsourced project, but I am hoping that I can do some research with it in the future because, there, I mean, there's so much data at this point, 750 stories and counting. And so you can definitely do some analyses and see where the story is coming from, obviously, the demographic characteristics of the people posting, but also try to make some connections. How often is alcohol used? How often do people use condoms? Or how often are these cheating stories? And, yeah. and then the relationships between these things. I think it's interesting comparing it with other research standpoint to mm -hmm. see, like, potentially you could weed out anonymous people have been submitting crap stories, basically, <laughs> fake, fake stories. But also you're relying in your research a lot on surveys as well. And in a research setting, I think you can get biases as well. In fact, I know in the marketing area, because I studied at business school, mm -hmm. that they actually factor in biases because over time they've had so much data for 50 years. Now they can tell if you say you're going to do something, there's a 50% chance that you're going to do it. So they factor that in now in survey responses. Obviously, in this area, I think there's not as much information and, and it's harder to track people's activities. So it might be interesting, like the right. sort of differences you can pull out between what people say on here and what people say in the research. And I guess it could expand ideas for what you should be looking at in research and maybe controlling for and things like that. I think you've got a, could be a lot of interesting things there. From what I read, I read a bunch of the women's stories. It fits a lot with what I've seen. It really rang true for me. I didn't see anything that doesn't fit with the kind of things we've spoken about on the show and uh, what we've seen. So I'd encourage anyone listening to read through some of the stories because uh, you'll probably get a bit. I like some of the things about uh, you ask questions about guilt or negative things that people felt afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think that could be eye opening for a bunch of guys. They're reading through a girl's story and it could be something that they're like, I've done something similar with a girl. I thought she had a great time. But and then you read some of the the impacts the next day or whenever it was or some of the things mm -hmm. she was thinking. It might give them a different perspective and kind of open their eyes up a bit. Yeah, absolutely, because often hookups are often with people you don't know very well, they don't last very long, you might be drunk or mostly drunk, and so communication is not always stellar between the partners, so often people just assume certain things about the other person, and it's not at all what's happening in the other person's head, but it's not actually communicated, so it's nice to read these stories and be like, oh, oh, okay. She was actually not enjoying it or you know, whatever. It's a cool project. Uh, it's really cool <laughs> that you're doing that. Just one thought. I don't know if this will be helpful for you. I don't know if you could use some kind of Facebook validation. You know, Tinder is using Facebook basically to validate people, to make it safer, more or less. It can be anonymous. You know that they're a real person. Maybe that might help your research quality. I don't know if that'd be difficult to do or... Yeah, I've been thinking about what the next step is, but yeah, that's, that's one option. But it kind of still has to be anonymous because for yeah, a lot yeah. of people that's, that's really important. Um, yeah. I just meant as a login, kind of like the Tinder, because right. you're basically anonymous on Tinder anyway, apart from your first name, but you could take that off anyway. I'd like to get to know you a little bit better. We've had a bunch of scientists on lately. We've had uh, Andrea Kachevsky, a neuroscientist. We've had Jeffrey Miller, he's an evolutionary psychologist. So where do you fit into the world of <laughs> science <am> <laughs> on dating, sex and relationships? <laughs> well, my PhD is in developmental psychology from Cornell University. 
And that means that my focus has been on, on development over the lifespan, particularly I've, I've looked at adolescence and young adulthood. Um, but my specific topic within the developmental psych uh, perspective has been on sexuality, uh, so sexual development and how sexuality and various expressions of it are connected to uh, well-being. So I call myself a sex researcher and a developmental psychologist, so you, you can take your pick. <laughs> okay, great, great. We're still kind of trying to figure out what the map is of all the areas of science that look at this area, and I'm not even sure that Academia knows where it all yeah. overlaps. It's not like there's one map which says all of these guys look at a little bit at sexuality and dating behaviors, attraction, and so on. Exactly. I mean, sexuality is such a multidisciplinary area that you have people who fall into many other more general scientific areas or disciplines that um, they might focus on sex from that perspective. So, you know, social personality, psychologists can look at sex, so can evolutionary psych, so can, you know, cognitive psych, all these different sort of areas of psychology and also other areas of sociology, anthropology, history, and all that. So I think all of those have something to say and something different, perhaps, say, to uh, people interested in sex and dating. Yeah, definitely. Are there any particular areas you can relate to and not relate to within the scientific establishment? Or is it like give or take different studies? And it's just like some of you like, yeah, that kind of fits with what we see. Some of it doesn't. What do you mean? You're coming at different perspectives evolutionary psychology versus, say, the technical research where uh, they're doing MRIs of people having orgasms and, and different things. So I can imagine that sometimes some of the papers that are coming out kind of conflict with each other because you're coming from a different base of information and different perspective. So I was just wondering if there's any areas you tend to connect to more with and others you... I think all of these areas something to contribute to our general knowledge of sexuality and dating and relationships. I don't think any one perspective has the monopoly and the truth. Oftentimes, even if we're trying to understand the same thing, we're coming from different perspectives and we're asking questions that are at different levels of understanding of that same phenomenon. So I think all of those are contributing and all of those have a piece of the puzzle. Not one of those people who's, it's all evolution or it's all biology and, or it's all, you know, social learning or I think all of those things play a role. So I totally identify and subscribe to a lot of the things that evolutionary psych has studied and found out, but also social and cultural influences and um, more biological, the neuroscience people or the hormone and behavior. Also, I think all of those things have something to, to contribute. Excellent. Excellent. Well said. You know, we're a complicated species. The answers to all of these behavioral um, questions and our, our desires are the things that drive us. But it's all going to be complicated. There's never going to be a single simple answer. Human beings are incredible. I like a work of art that maybe mm -hmm. we'll never understand. <laughs> Just biologically, all the stuff, the billions of stuff going on all the time. Right. It's amazing that we have coherent behaviors at all. <laughs> <laughs> Would like to get to know you a bit better also. Could you let us know how old you are, where you're living? What's your current dating relationship lifestyle like? <laughs> I am 32 and I live in Brooklyn, New York City. I am originally from Macedonia, which is a small country in Southeast Europe, just north of Greece. I came to the U.S. to do my Ph.D. at Cornell about eight years ago, and I have stayed here. I'm not going back permanently. I actually became a citizen last month. Congratulations. So, um, thank you. So I guess I'm here to stay for a while. I now teach human sexuality at NYU at New York University, and I write and do other things as well. I'm married. To a man. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's important to know because I could be married. Too, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. How long have you been married? Married for four years, I think. 
<laughs> wow. And you must have been a very busy four years because you're trying to keep time flies. Um, oh, yeah. Very busy four years. That's all I'm going to tell you about my private dating life. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> so let's move on now to what casual sex is exactly and why we have it for people at home so they can understand what it is and what it isn't. Because I know when you're looking at this area, you like define some stuff as casual sex. And when I was reading through the research and the, and the posts that you have, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like the way you approach it and say that some aspects are casual sex that might, some people might not consider them. So, so how do you look at casual sex? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think everyone agrees on the answer and, and that's fine. The way I define casual sex is in a fairly broad way. Any sexual experience and that can mean anything from kissing and making out to full-on intercourse or a bunch of kinky uh, you know, fetishistic behaviors any kind of interaction between two or more people sexual interaction between two or more people who are not in a committed long-term sort of romantic relationship uh, and by committed I don't necessarily mean monogamous where there's an established kind of understanding that we are a couple we're dating we're, we're going to try and make it work, you know, long term. So that's a fairly broad definition. A lot of researchers have defined it in a in much narrower ways. Only, for example, one night stands um, have been counted or, you know, sex with people that you just met uh, recently. Also, often it's been defined only at the level of, say, intercourse or only if oral sex or more happened kind of thing. So, so there are many gray areas. I think no one will argue that a one night stand with someone you just met and you had intercourse with, I don't think anyone would argue that that's casual. But actually see it on a continuum of how well you know your partner and how emotionally connected and romantically committed you are to them. So that clear cut case of one night stand with someone you just met at the bar an hour ago would be on one end of the that continuum, on one, one extreme, and say, you know, sex with someone who you've known for 15 years and have been married for 12 is on the other end of the continuum. And I think somewhere in the middle would be that friends with benefits category where you're, you're having sex with someone who's, who's a friend, who you've known for a while, so you do have some shared history and background. Uh, you may have some feelings for them, even if they're not romantic, but you have some emotional connection with them. Um, that's kind of a, a little gray area. Some people have considered friends with benefits a separate category. That's not exactly casual. That's not exactly romantic. But I think it kind of fits into the casual realm because of the lack of that sense that we're a couple and we're romantically involved. And I'm okay if people kind of disagree on that one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. This runs into a topic that we've had a few times lately because we've been talking about online dating and Tinder. Obviously, there are mm -hmm. kind of hot topics, especially with the Tinder. Mm -hmm. My experience on Tinder is that it's very casual. And OkCupid, for that matter, tends to be pretty casual. Other dating sites like Match.com and Chemistry are a bit more serious and people are looking for that long-term right. thing. But I guess my point is, I think the way this gives you access to more casual relationships, you can meet someone tomorrow pretty easily through Tinder or even today, mm -hmm. and right. you can hit it off and you'll never see them again potentially mm -hmm. after that. Whereas it wasn't quite as easy before that. Maybe you'd meet someone in the bar or something in there, but it's a bit more unusual. Now it seems like Tinder seems to be making it more acceptable from what I've seen. Depends on the country. Like I said, I'm in South of Spain. It's not, I don't think they really use Tinder the same way here. But my point is, is it seems like casual sex is growing in acceptance. And so it's becoming, and the other, the other, that's kind of one trend because the online thing and the accessibility mm -hmm. making it easier. The other thing we've spoken about before on the podcast is that people tend to date casually for a while, 
before they get involved as a relationship, before they have that moment where they say, this is an exclusive relationship. You'll be maybe dating a few people for a while. And it's only what that moment when you're like, actually, I'm not interested in these other people. So I'm going to stop seeing them mm -hmm. and I'm just going to focus on this one person. Whereas right. before there didn't seem to be so much of this multi-dating, basically the period of multi-dating wasn't what everyone did. People kept it less numerous less fragmented when they were they were dating to look for someone serious. What do you think about those two trends? Is that something that you've seen any research on in terms of how casual sex is evolving and how you look at it? Yeah, um, there's, been, there's been a fair amount of research. Unfortunately, we don't have too much research about what was happening 20 years ago or, or more in the past. We don't have as much research on that in general, but casual sex in particular was something that we started only studying in a more focused way in the last 15, 20 years. But we, the, the, there are some indications of uh, trends and, and such, and there's no doubt that um, attitudes have become more liberal in that sense, that it's become more and more acceptable. Some 30 years ago, the only acceptable or the majority of people believed that the only acceptable way to have sex was uh, once you were married to someone. Now, the vast majority, especially of young people, I mean, if you, you ask 20-year-olds or 18 to 25-year-olds, whether premarital sex is acceptable, in a pretty much not, almost 90% of them will say that it is. In fact, most young people will also say that sex with someone that you're in a romantic committed relationship is acceptable, regardless of your you know, engagement or marriage status. Casual sex has not yet achieved that level of acceptability, and I don't even know if it's ever going to happen. But right now, what we see is um, a great variety of attitudes toward casual sex. So there are many people who are accepting of it. There are many people who are not at all accepting of it and are probably even more people who are somewhere in the middle. Whenever we ask that question, you know, how acceptable do you think casual sex is? The mean is usually somewhere in the middle of that scale. Mm. Uh, so it uh, hovers around the midpoint of the scale, which indicates that there is this variability with most people thinking, well, you know, in certain circumstances it might be okay, in certain circumstances it might not be, and then fewer people being like, yeah, it's, it's cool, no problem, and also fewer people being like, no, absolutely not. It is a lot more acceptable today than it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago, um, and that trend might continue at least among the young people to increase to some extent, but that also depends on, on what happens. We in some way had a similar trend happening during the sexual revolution, Right when sexuality all of a sudden became more acceptable and uh, casual sex at that time was also becoming uh, more acceptable, something akin to what's happening today. Are you talking about uh, the 70s? The, the hippie? Yeah, the 70s, yeah. yeah. The 60s and the 70s. And then all of a sudden AIDS happened. Things moved back in a more conservative direction and casual sex became less acceptable because of that. And a lot of sociologists um, and historians agree that the, the AIDS scare had a very, very important role to play in that uh, going back to more conservative values. Uh, and now we're kind of moving again in the opposite direction. But, you know, something might happen again, something yeah. like the AIDS scare that will um, that will stop that process or reverse that process. That's interesting for me because I grew up with the adverts on TV about AIDS in my early teens or whenever it was. And I, I remember all these ads. So I think Probably yeah. my generation was the most marked by it because just a few years before we became sexually active, we were getting all this right. programming about yeah. sex is dangerous and all of these precautions exactly. you had to take. But, but of course, that hasn't been taking place. There aren't any ads on TV for quite a while now. So 
Because all these kids now that are growing up without very much exposure to AIDS, really, they see it a bit in the news, but not that much. You know, it's kind of hidden these days. Not that much, yeah. And these days, it's not as deadly as it was when you were growing up. At that time, becoming HIV positive was a death sentence, uh, a very quick death sentence. These days, it's not. These days, it's like uh, having diabetes or some other chronic disease that can be fairly easily managed, at least in the West, where we have access to therapy. So that scare is not as salient anymore for people, and it's not as accurate. There's no need for you to be scared as if it's a deadly disease. Yeah. It's still a, still a disease, and hopefully you don't want to get it, but if you do, that, that doesn't mean you're going to die within uh, a couple of years. Right. I'd just like to say something because I only learned about this very recently. You must, I'm sure you know about this, but I didn't know that if you basically you have unprotected sex, you have a 24-hour window to get to the doctors and get some antivirals. And even if you were exposed, you have a chance of avoiding the problem if you get that quick enough. Have you seen that? I only read about it very recently. I didn't know it was a possibility. Absolutely. That's been around for many years now. The window period is actually 72 hours. Okay. And it's called post-exposure prophylactic. It's basically some combination of the antiretroviral therapy that uh, people who are already infected are given. But in a different combination, it can actually prevent the virus from um, taking hold in your body. Another thing that has become available very recently is pre-exposure prophylactic. I don't know if you guys have talked about that on the show, but people who are at very high risk of getting HIV, people who often have sex with a lot of people, um, for example, but are not very good about using condoms, or people who are in a relationship with someone who has HIV. So that kind of high-risk individuals can go on this pre-exposure prophylactic it's basically one pill that you take once a day, every day, and it decreases your chances of getting HIV by 99% or something like that. Oh, that's pretty. So, yeah, just to be clear, this is not 100%. So don't don't run around uh, exposing it's yourself. Not, it's purposely. not 100%, but it's actually, it can be even better than condoms if you're taking it every day. It's better um, than condoms, you say? Yep. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's pretty cool. Does it have any side effects? They say that they are fairly minor. I mean, we don't have long-term studies. So we don't know if, if it has in 20 years, if it will have some side effects, but the uh, short-term side effects don't seem to be very um, yeah. uh, very serious. But if it happened to be in that high-risk group, do take a look at uh, PrEP and see if that might be something to, uh, to look into for yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I was amazed to see how AIDS research really has advanced. My feeling mm-hmm. was it was a bit like cancer. They weren't getting anywhere. And they were just trudging right. because it's not in the news. I've never heard about this in the news at all. It was just something I happened to Google and find on the Internet. So yeah. they really they should beef up their <laughs> marketing budgets, I think. Yeah, they didn't want to market it too much. It's actually quite controversial uh, here in the U.S. A lot of people are saying if you offer this to everyone, then people are going to stop using condoms altogether. And then you're going to have huge outbreaks of other sexually transmitted That's infections. True that the PrEP does not protect you from syphilis and gonorrhea and that kind of stuff, that it's basically getting people to have bad, risky behaviors. But it's a big debate, and I'm not sure we can We can't do it justice in five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, but there are pros and cons to that argument. Uh, You know, the, the other people are saying, but these are people who are already not using condoms. So... At least this way we can protect them from HIV, if not from other things. It's a complex issue. I am always shocked at the number of guys, because I talk to more guys Mm -hmm. about this topic than anything else. And I'm shocked at the number of guys who don't use condoms. I just, I don't get it. Me too. And actually the Casual Sex Project has been quite, I guess, surprising in that way. The number of stories that people share where the condoms were not used is actually quite astonishing. 
And to me, it's very surprising. I mean, these are people that you don't know. You just met or even someone you do know, um, but you're not exclusive with. It's also funny, like I heard uh, one of my buddies recently is like, yeah, I was with this girl for a week. So we decided to do it without a condom. But obviously nothing's changed. <laughs> it's like, a week, yeah. But you feel emotionally more comfortable. It's strange to say it that way, but I understand what he's saying. When I've been with someone for a couple of months, we haven't been tested. You feel right. very comfortable with each other and you don't feel like that person could kill you. <laughs> it's like, right. this but is the way it is. Yeah. It's a false sense of you know, safety and security, but it's very common, even in longer term relationships. You know, that's what happens. People stop using condoms the minute they start feeling comfortable with this person, as opposed to actually going and getting tested, which is the way it should be. But most often it isn't. So that's just as like a bulletin alert and a sidestep. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in a relationship, get tested before you start going without Absolutely. condom. Yeah. There we go. That was a nice little sidestep. Uh, thank you very much for covering that. I'm glad you knew quite a bit about it. But it's nice to get this kind of information out there. I was surprised, I was telling you. So back to casual sex. Who's having casual sex? Have you got demographics and other information about how it varies according to age, gender, like uh, geography and so on? A lot of people are having it. <laughs> um, it's certainly most common among young people. What is young? Are we talking under 25, under 30? What is young? Um, yeah, 18 to 25 demographic is usually the one that's studied the most. And among that demographic, the majority of people have had at least one casual encounter. That's what is usually asked. Have you ever had this experience? Uh, or sometimes they're asked about your most recent sexual experience, what kind of partner was that with? Again, different studies define it differently, so, so it's, it's not always easy to compare uh, between studies, but certainly for young people, again, 18 to 25, and also teenagers, um, not all teenagers are having sex, obviously, but among those who are having sex, the majority has experienced a casual you know, situation at least once. That's interesting. So the teenagers are having more casual sex than relationship sex, or is that, oh, am I putting words in your mouth here? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're having more casual sex, but they are having, they have experienced casual sex as well as relationship sex. So that's, that's one thing that I often get asked, is casual sex replacing dating? And uh, I don't think we have evidence to suggest that. Um, what seems to be happening is people are having relationships. Uh, they're also having casual sex. So it's not replacing, it's kind of supplementing relationship sex. Are these affairs? Are these cheating? Or is this polyamory? Would you... I don't know if you'd count polyamory and multiple dating in there. And what kind of contexts are we talking about here? I wouldn't count polyamory in casual sex because polyamory is all about having long-term multiple relationships, right? right? But an open relationship where you're allowed to have sex with someone else, I would, I would certainly count that. So when I say casual sex is supplementing romantic sex, that could be because people in romantic relationships are having open relationships or swinging type relationships because people are cheating or it's something that they do in between relationships, right? Before or after. So um, I think any one of those situations could count. But we're certainly seeing both. And there's no decrease in the number of people who say, for example, there was a recent study that came out on a nationally representative sample of 18 to 25-year-olds and asked them, have you had sex with a relationship partner in the last year? And the vast majority said yes. And that was the same number of people that had said yes, pretty much the same number of people that said yes, um, compared to uh, 15 years ago. Hmm. But there were more people who said that they had uh, also in the last year had sex with a friend or an acquaintance. 
compared to people 15 years ago. So It's like it's growing amongst social contacts. It's becoming more common to have sex with people you hang out with. People yeah. are friends. It's basically people you hang out. So it could be with people at college and a group of friends or it's like social mm-hmm. contacts. But people you know versus going to a nightclub and meeting someone you've never seen before in your life, going home with them and then afterwards never seeing them again. Yes. So the most common category of casual partner, if you will, is a friend. The prototypical one I stand with someone you never you've never met before is actually the rarest form of casual sex. Usually the people that you have this casual sex with are someone that is in your group of friends or maybe a more distant acquaintance, but it's someone that you first of all know for at least some amount of time. That's not that's more than a week or, or so. The average is actually a few months. Uh, at least for young people. And the vast majority of people have had more than one sexual encounter with each casual partner that they have. So the one night stand is not that common. That's the prototype of casual sex that we all have in our heads, the one night stand with a stranger, but that just doesn't make up a large percentage of the sex that people are having. Because I might have two one night stands, but if I've had two uh, friends with benefits who I've had sex with many times, and I've had a lot more casual sex with these two friends than the two nights that I spend with the two one-night stands. Right. That's just a lot more common. It's not surprising. If sex was good with someone, then you want to repeat it. And a lot more people feel more comfortable having sex with someone that they know or have known for a while um, rather than they, someone they just met an hour ago. I think it's a positive thing. It's encouraging. It means that people are getting... The kind of worst case scenario, the one that the media kind of looks at or the stereotype is that you go to a club, you get too drunk and you go home with someone you're not interested in. Um, right, you have right. sex and then you're kind of guilty. And that's why you leave each other in the morning or preferably in the evening and you never see each other again. So it's actually encouraging that that's not happening as much as the stereotype mm-hmm. says. And rather these are people who are probably interested in each other a little bit for a while. Mm-hmm. They hook up and then a few yeah, more times. Yeah, they actually like each other. They each other right there they have some shared history together of some sort yeah so yeah in that sense it's encouraging i don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with going to a club meeting someone and going home but if you take out the getting drunk part and going home with someone that you wouldn't have normally gone home with i guess the I other thing i don't know if you know about this but i used to talk about this i used to go to clubs a lot and mm-hmm. with my buddies the next day i would talk about happy goggles because i never drank um, Happy and, goggles. Yeah, because I didn't have the excuse of alcohol because I quit drinking uh-huh. Uh-huh. years before. But I would go out and I'd just run around the club having a great time, sometimes mm. go home with a girl, sometimes regret it the next day. And mm. it, no alcohol was involved. But I, I Why did you regret it? Well, just because I figured if I hadn't been in that mood, I maybe wouldn't have done it. So it felt awkward in the morning. And it was just kind of one of those situations where I was like, oh, I don't know if this was the best decisions. I kind of got onto this thing of happy goggles. <laughs> so sometimes when I'm in a really good mood, I would have like pushed things further than if I wasn't in a good mood, basically, because when you're kind of stimulated in the club, you're having a lot of fun. So I actually wondered how much of it was alcohol and how much of it was just the environment and the context of it. Oh, uh, definitely the environment contributes to that. There's no doubt. And the mood. It's not just alcohol. And research shows that people are a lot more likely to hook up when, say, they're on vacation. So the environment is such that they're in this good mood. They feel like, oh, this, this is the place where the, things like this happen. Or even if they're at a bar or a club and they're not drinking, you're more likely to be thinking of hooking up in an environment in which that is expected than, say, if you're going to the coffee shop or going to the library 
that's not where you go to pick up people. That's where you go to do something else. But when you go to a bar or a club or on vacation, that's kind of part of the experience. So you're more likely to think about that and more likely to expend energy in that direction. What my research has shown recently is that whether it ends up being a good experience or a bad experience depends on, is this something that you really wanted to do? Are you doing this for the right reason? And that could, I mean, being in a good mood and wanting to hook up, there's nothing wrong with that. There's something wrong with that if that's not what you really wanted to do. Is this who you really are? Is this part of your sense of self and desires? Are you someone who likes to go and you know, see someone that you find attractive and go home with them and have sex, even if you may never see them again. Are you okay with that? Are your attitudes and desires in line with that kind of behavior? My research shows that when this behavior is, in fact, in line with your attitudes and desires, uh, your well-being is more likely to be increased after that experience. Uh, whereas if this is something that you didn't really want to do or you were doing it for the wrong reasons, you were doing it because you were kind of peer pressured into it because everyone else is doing it or because you were hoping it would lead to something more, that it wouldn't yeah. be just casual sex, right? Or if you, you got drunk or because you were trying to please your partner but you weren't really into it kind of thing. If you did it for these kind of wrong reasons, then your well-being suffers. Yeah, let's take it one step back and, and talk about what well-being is, because I want the guys to understand how this is really affecting them, kind of get, get a practical feeling for it. When you're measuring well-being, what kind of things are you looking at? What does it mean? How is it right. going to be good or, or negative? What I measure in my studies is things like self-esteem, life satisfaction, anxiety, depression. Some people have looked at just how positive or negative a specific uh, hookup experience was evaluated as. But I actually look at these more stable or long-term kind of well-being indicators that are not directly related to the evaluation of the experience. In some studies, you might be asked, tell us about your most recent hookup, um, how positive was it, how negative, how much do you regret it, that kind of stuff. Yep. But I'm, I'm interested more in things, how you feel about yourself, and how you evaluate your life in general, and trying to see whether your casual sex experiences and different types of casual sex experiences influence your more stable evaluations of yourself and your life. Right. Is the way you look at this just, I'm not sure the way you look at confidence and how it affects you, but are these kind of like, say it's, you're doing it in a way that is having a negative impact on your well-being, is it a negative hit each time and it, it's like taking your self-esteem lower so you can potentially be less confident in dating scenarios as time goes on and maybe other scenarios as well, would it spill out to that? Are um, these big questions? That can't be answered. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we have an answer to that yet. It's hard to know. We don't quite have the data in, in a way that would allow us to answer. Is there a sort of a dose-dependent effect that each negative experience adds more to decreases in well-being or whether it requires a certain threshold? Maybe if you had five bad experiences on the fifth one, you know, you get a decrease. We don't quite know. But um, I think it makes sense that the, the more negative experiences you have, the more and more difficult it is to discount them in some other way, right? If you had one negative experience, you can be like, oh, that was just a stupid mistake or, oh, the guy was a jerk or the girl was whatever. But if it's a pattern, right, if it happens more often, then you become more likely to say, okay, maybe there's something wrong with me, what I'm doing as opposed to what the other person is doing or what the situation was. If you're having a lot of casual sex and most of that is a negative experience, then uh, you're probably doing something wrong and stop. <laughs> um, 
Whereas, you know, if you're having a lot of casual sex and every now and then there's a negative experience, but most of them are very positive, then probably you're, you're doing something right and you should be okay to continue. <laughs> Yeah, and there is ways to identify what could be wrong. You're saying in some cases it you don't feel good about it, and it, it sounds like you can basically judge it on your feeling afterwards. It's like, I don't feel good about this experience. And mm -hmm. I guess the, the big thing here is to take notice of that. And if you're feeling that, try and identify what it is. And what kind of reasons have you found for it not being good for well-being? You've mentioned a few of them, but what is there like a list of, of different things that people should be trying to avoid or asking themselves, beforehand maybe asking themselves right now it's like what type of person am i when it comes to casual sex is this for me is this not for me are there kind of questions they can ask themselves so that they can understand what kind of orientation they have and how relevant it is to them and in what situations basically we all differ on how interested and oriented toward casual sex we are and how comfortable we feel having sex with someone we don't know very well mm. or we're not very committed to it actually that it's a personality trait that has its own name, sociosexual orientation or sociosexuality. And some people are very high on that and some people are very low on that. People who don't desire sex with someone that they're not very close with, people who uh, have negative attitudes toward this kind of sex, um, they're called restricted, sociosexually restricted. And people who are very into it and very approving and they don't need a lot of time. You know, People who just see someone have that instinct instant kind of physical attraction reaction like oh i find this person very attractive i just want to have sex with them right now they are considered to be socially unrestricted and and this is a continuum just like some people are very extroverted some people are very introverted and some people are somewhere in between so it's the same thing with sexuality so i think that what my research has shown um is that this where you are on that spectrum matters or whether you're going to enjoy and benefit your well-being, whether it's going to benefit from your uh, casual sex experiences or not. So for people should ask themselves, is this something that I want? Is this the kind of sex that I want to be having, or am I doing it for other reasons? So the more sexually unrestricted you are, the more your well-being is going to benefit from random hookups or hookups in general. How far do you think this is? predetermined versus determined. I'll give you a quick background to me. I was brought up Catholic, a Catholic family, pretty hardcore, I guess, and restricted. So sex was never spoken about. And mm -hmm. I learned some stuff off TV or wherever. And mm -hmm. so in my early years, I had a few girlfriends, basically, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't even thought of going outside of that. Then I got to a certain age and I decided to explore, probably because of an event that happened in my life. I split up with a girlfriend and decided to change things up. And mm -hmm. it was uncomfortable at first. However, I pushed through it and then began to enjoy it. So mm -hmm. I bring this up because you were talking about like some people were kind of predetermined. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if you've done any research on how people can evolve or how you can just kind of look at yourself and decide, oh, this is something I should explore. We had uh, Reed Mahalko as a sex educator on before. One of his pieces of advice was you should learn to be open and try and learn about who you are really deep inside without this shell that's kind of been given to you socially, mm -hmm, depending on absolutely. where you brought up and so on. And then really try and discover what biologically really, and you as a person really want to, so that you can learn about what your sexual expression would be. So obviously I think a lot of people don't do that. They don't, <laughs> they don't get past the discomfort. So I guess it's a problem if you can't kind of think in a way that gets you past that discomfort, it becomes negative, but maybe if you can think of it, if you can consciously change the way you think about it, then you're able to get past that and start seeing it. And I saw 
I'll let you comment now, but I saw an article of yours I'd like to bring up afterwards. Okay. <laughs> um, it's a really good question of how predetermined your sociosexuality, if you will, is. And as I was saying in the beginning, there is no one one answer that it's all biology or it's all socialization. It's a mix of a lot of different things. And we do have evidence to suggest that to some extent, your sexuality is, is uh, biologically predetermined by your levels of testosterone or your level of dopamine receptors in yeah. your brain. So uh, people who are in general who have a higher sex drive and combined with uh, high need for novelty and sensation seeking, you know, these people tend to be more socio-sexually unrestricted. I mean, it makes sense. They want more sex and they want more novelty in their sex. That certainly puts you in a, in a predisposition to be unrestricted. But we cannot discount what is happening in our environment as well. I mean, we're products of our environment almost as much as we're products of our biology. So to some extent, how we grow up and the attitudes and values that we internalize make who we are as well. So I agree with Reed that we should examine who we are and who we want to be. But that is, I mean, our attitudes are part of that. And we can choose whether we want to internalize the, the attitudes that we've been taught or not. You can say the same for attitudes that, say, college students uh, receive when they get to college from their social environment. They may have received one set of values from their parents, but then they come into their frats and sororities and they're told that we hook up. That's what we do here. Hooking up is great and you got to hook up with the frat brothers or the, you know, the little sisters and whatever, that is just as much you know, social learning as it was your parents saying that you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. So it's really on to you to decide, okay, where am I? What do I believe in? What do I think is right? Uh, and what do I think is right for me? And I think your level of desire and biological predisposition should play a role in that. If you are someone who just biologically, you don't really care much about sex, you don't care much about the novelty, um, you meet someone and get to know them better before you start having sex with them, then maybe that's the kind of value set that you should de develop and adopt. So again, all of these things play a role. And to go beyond just hormones or, or receptors in the brain and social learning, there are other things in, the, in our environment that determine our sociosexuality as well. So things like uh, sex ratio, how many men versus how many women are in an environment? Usually there are 50-50 in a society, but there are societies where there are more men or more women. So ways of thinking are likely to shift based on which sex is more um, available. Our preferences also or comfort with casual sex is also likely to change depending on our personal, physical, and social circumstances. So if you're a guy who's very good looking, strong, and has high social status, then your brain is going to sort of calibrate to think, I can get a lot of girls, so I'm going to want to get a lot of girls. But if you're a guy who's not very good looking and you know, not very physically or socially strong, then you would be wasting your time if you were trying to get a lot of women. Right, so, so it's like an economics thing. Yeah, so your brain unconsciously probably reverts back to the other strategy and be like, no, I should be wasting my time trying to get, you know, with 100 women, I should focus on maybe one or two women that I can have long-term relationships with. That's interesting. Um, it's the same for women. A lot of the time, women are, women's promiscuity or interest in casual sex is held back by 
financial uh, dependency on men, on their families or on their uh, partners. When women are financially stable themselves, they don't depend on anyone else, they are more free to engage in whatever kind of sex they want to. So we do see that in countries where women are more independent and even in countries within one country, women who are more independent financially um, often have higher sociosexuality. So all of these things matter, right? All of these things determine how interested uh, we are in casual sex. Is there any correlation between IQ? I've seen this mentioned a few times or intelligence or perhaps your profession. For example, you just put up lawyers and like so some of the higher professions. Are there, is there any correlation between that and casual sex or not having casual sex? There's not a lot of research on that. And there are only, I, I want to say, one or two studies that have looked specifically at IQ, uh, sociosexuality. And I think there's one study showing that higher IQ is linked to higher sociosexuality. But um, I, I wouldn't put too much trust in those results because yeah. all of those samples are very limited. So they're all like college students, for example. Yeah. Um, and, and that's already a very restricted IQ of group. College students, on average, are pretty high on IQ in general. So you don't get the, the variability that you would need to make such a claim. We do know that lower SES among young people um, lower education, people who uh, are dropped out of high school or only had um, high school level of education, they are more likely to have casual sex than college students. There was a new study that just came out recently that showed that in a large random sample of Ohio young people. That affects the stereotype. Higher status, higher educated people are supposed to be more restrained. Yeah, to some extent. Maybe because they're more concerned about the social implications. Probably, yeah. So we've talked a little bit around. I'd like to make sure that we talk from the girls' perspective a bit. Mm -hmm. Is there any differences between men and women when it comes to what affects the well-being of the experience itself? That has been a big question that a lot of people have tried to answer. And when you look at how positive or how negative people evaluate their hookup experiences as, men always evaluate them as uh, somewhat more positive and somewhat less negative than women do. Uh, women are more likely to have ambivalent feelings, kind of both positive and negative, but they're also more likely to have mostly or only negative feelings than, than a more mixed uh, or just positive experiences. But studies that have looked at um, effects on well-being, on this more stable sense of self-esteem or life satisfaction or anxiety or depression, most of the time don't find gender differences in effects. So it seems like even though women may be having somewhat less satisfying or less positive hookup experiences, they don't seem to be suffering from negative well-being consequences overall any more than men do. So it sounds Um, like basically the recorded satisfaction is lower, but the recorded mm -hmm. well-being is the same, as if they were having the same satisfaction from the experience as men. Yeah, for the most part, it just doesn't seem to negatively impact overall well-being. And in fact, most studies, these longitudinal studies where you can track the same people over time and see whether having casual sex had some sort of an impact later on, say three months later or six months later or one year later on well-being, most studies find that there is no effect, positive or negative, overall in men or women. For a lot of people, that's counterintuitive. Seems like, wait a second, how can it not have an effect? 
But what my research has showed and um, some other research is, is recently showing is that that's because it doesn't have the same effect on everyone. So you're talking yeah. it's like a mean effect? It gets normalized mean effect, out? Yes, exactly. That for some people it probably has a negative effect. For other people it has a positive effect. For some people it has no effect. But when you combine all of those people together in one sample, those effects kind of wash out. And the mean effect ends up being non-significant. Um, so what we need to be looking at is these more sophisticated or more subtle differences between people like uh-huh. sexuality or, or your motivation. If you're doing it for the right reasons, yeah. then you have positive effects. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, then it has negative effects. If you're doing it for the right reasons, whether you're a guy or a girl, it's going to have positive effects. Right. If you're doing it for the wrong reasons, whether you're a guy or a girl, it's going to have negative yeah. effects. So the post I was referring to, you spoke about autonomous versus non-autonomous behaviors driving it. Is that the final word on that? Is that actually in your research what points out, like, it's going to be good for you if it's an autonomous motivation and not good for you if it's a non-autonomous? Is that pretty clear? Uh, Yeah, my study showed, and there's actually another study that used a slightly different methodology that found the people who are doing it for these autonomous reasons. And autonomous reasons are, again, I was talking about that, because you really wanted to do it. Because this is something that you just really wanted to have sex with that person who you found attractive. Or because it was kind of an important experience for you to have. You wanted to explore yourself and your sexuality. So those are all autonomous reasons. And both my study and this other study found that when you, the more autonomous your motivation, your well-being following casual sex either didn't change or it actually uh, improved, Hmm. but it certainly didn't go down. But it was the people who were doing it for non-autonomous reasons, for these wrong reasons that that I mentioned a couple of times. What does autonomous mean? Because I don't think that's a word everyone uses every day. It means that it really comes from you. It's something that... um, is really in line with who you are and what you want to be doing. It's not externally motivated. It's not, you know, you're not doing it. In it's like internally it. motivated. It comes from inside you without influence from outside. In one sense, it can be internally, uh, purely internally motivated or intrinsic that has often been used in terms of motivation. But sometimes it can be maybe you know, not completely intrinsic, but it's something that you internalize deeply and now agree with, like, okay, well, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this, but I want to explore my sexuality because I think it's an important experience to have. That all falls into this sense of autonomy. When you feel like you own your experience, this is coming from you. You have control over what you're doing. Yeah, you have have a sense of ownership. Whereas the non-autonomous reasons are reasons that kind of feel external to who you are. Or even if you're trying to avoid certain negative feelings, both of these studies found that if you are going into this casual sex encounter hoping that it would improve your self-esteem, so if you're kind of feeling down and right. um, you're hoping that this is going to help you feel better about yourself, it's not. It's actually going to make you feel worse about yourself. But if you don't go into it hoping it would make you feel better about yourself, it actually is going to make you feel better about yourself and more confident. Yeah. There was a list of nice, interesting reasons. There were things like revenge sex, if you're doing it for revenge. Uh, right. it, for me, it seemed a lot of things related to stimuli from outsiders as well, like things like peer pressure. An interesting example for the peer pressure one, uh, by the way, I think is the pickup artist community. And there's this other community, I don't know if you know, it's called the Manosphere. Yeah. And so there tends to be a lot of pressure in those communities uh, to sleep with a lot of women. 
and brag about your score, <laughs> you know, how many right. women you've slept with. That sounds very non-autonomous to me. Mm-hmm. So unless you've actually decided that that's for you, if you've kind of got into one of those communities and you're doing it just because you're in that community, mm-hmm. then that's the sort of thing that could push down your well-being. And I think we've seen cases Absolutely. where a lot of men in those communities get unhappier over time. So they for me, this is an interesting area because it could be like saying, well, duh, this is why. It's- yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, study after study shows that men are a lot more likely to, to hook up due to peer pressure than are women. Because they think, especially on college campuses, if they're part of a frat that, yeah. you know, expects that or condones that. Men do, um, do, do tend to do this bragging thing, whereas women are more discreet in general. I mean, they don't even tell yeah. each other all the stories. Or, or is that well, not what you've seen? No, they actually do talk about these things uh, with their friends, uh, with their female friends often, um, and sometimes with the male friends. The Casual Sex Project certainly suggests that both men and women talk to their friends about their experiences, but the context is different. Girls do it in order to share sort of information, um, kind of get support uh, from their friends, but it's not done in a mean kind of way. It's not done in a bragging sort of way. Whereas guys, especially in those kinds of communities, tend to do it in a, in a more negative kind of way toward the women. So, it's, yeah, the context is different. But there's no doubt that that is a non-autonomous motivation. It's coming from your community. It's not coming from you. There's nothing wrong in having sex with a lot of different women. But if that's really what you want to be doing, if that's really making you happy, not your friends happy. Yeah. I guess the thing is, you shouldn't have to tell your friends to feel happy about it. Exactly. If you're one of these people that's running to a forum board to post about it, and that's the big motivation, it's probably you have to start asking yourself questions about that. Exactly. If you're hooking up only so that you have stories to tell your friends, then you probably shouldn't be hooking up. (laughs) But if you're hooking up because you really are enjoying it, every moment that you spend doing that, you're loving it. Yeah. To put this into practical terms, it sounds like it's pretty simple from, say, a guy's perspective. He should just ask himself two questions. Am I doing this because I want to, I'm fun and I just like think she's hot and I just want to have sex with her and I'm, I'm happy with that. I just, I'm in the moment and I want to have fun with that. Or mm-hmm. I'm really exploring my sexuality right now and I want to have more sexual experiences. And this is kind of fits with the expression, read Mahalko. And mm-hmm. it's also one that I think is very healthy as well. So you can consciously decide that or it can be a natural one. If you just ask yourself if you've got one of those two motivations, and if not, it could be a problem. Yeah, pretty much. There are other things other than motivation that can influence, obviously, whether you have a good experience or a bad experience. You could go in with the right motives and still yeah. uh, not get a good experience, obviously. But that's the first thing. Um, and I think it's one of the most important things in whether you're going to have a good experience, and not just a good experience in the moment, but an experience that's going to enrich your well-being overall. So yeah, I think those are the two main good reasons that should be driving your hookups. Excellent. Um, and wanting to do it and, or wanting to explore. So this is from the guy's perspective right. or from the girls, if she's, but it's For guys both. listening to this show. Yeah, it's, it's mostly guys listening to this show. So although there are a fair amount of women I get emails from, so I know they're listening too. And this all applies to you too. So what I was saying is also that often the guy is leading a bit more than the girl. So I think there's also this opportunity now that we know about this casual sex well-being and it can have a negative effect and a positive effect. Is there ways that a guy should be looking out for things that can make it a a good positive experience for the girl he's with? Are there there any things he can think about or if he sees something? Just interesting things you might have to say about that. Like in practical terms, what could he be looking out for or doing? Absolutely, yes. Everything that we're talking about up to this point was about your own personal well-being. 
but there's an interpersonal experience. There's always another person involved. And so this is more important to men than to women because they often fail to make sure that they're providing a good experience for their female partner. So here's a couple of things that I would really like if guys paid more attention to. One, not lying, not leading her on, being very open and honest about what this is. If you know that this is just a hookup and you're probably not going to be interested in pursuing anything more than that, don't tell them that this is something more. Don't lead them on to think that this is more. Allow your female partner to be able to make an informed decision, an autonomous decision about whether she wants to engage in this or not. And knowing whether this is just casual or something more is an important piece of information that she needs to have in order to make that decision. Right. In that case, she might have an autonomous and she's just interested in a relationship, you're saying, and you're just interested in casual sex and you're not allowing it. You're making it non-autonomous. You're forcing her into this bad well-being situation by forcing her to be non-autonomous because she... Yeah, you're you're tricking her into making a non-autonomous decision because if she knew that this was just casual, she would say no. And that may lead to fewer casual experiences for you, but at least you're not going to be a douchebag. You're going to be a good human being who is not going around and hurting other human beings. And ultimately, that also comes back to you. Hurting others, uh, especially on a a sort of a regular basis, ultimately harms your well-being as well. That's a really important thing. Another thing is try not to take advantage of women who are drunk, especially very drunk, to kind of make sure that this is what she wants in the situation as well. If necessary, get a verbal, yes, this is what I want, because women are often a little too shy, not assertive enough to say no. So just double check with them. If if the situation is unclear, especially for those one night stand settings, when you just met someone, they seem like they want it, but they may not want it because they're really trashed. And so just check in with them. Yeah. So that's alcohol and drugs, anything that modifies the mind a little bit. Exactly. That doesn't mean that someone who's tipsy or even fairly drunk is not autonomously wanting to have that experience, but their ability to make that decision is certainly impaired. And so it's something to think about. Another thing is try to give pleasure to your partner. This is a big gender difference that we see in casual sex research. The less a guy knows a woman, the less interested he is in her pleasure. And that is not true for women. The less he knows about... The less he knows, the less time he spent with with Uh someone. So if it's a one-night stand with someone they just met versus someone they've known for a week versus someone not friends with benefits situation, the more someone is a stranger, the less interested that the guy is to give pleasure to that person. In those kinds of situations, the guys are usually just interested in getting pleasure themselves, but not actually giving her pleasure. Whereas that's not true for women. Even in one night stands with someone they just met, the women still want to please the guy. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's interesting. A few set of research is pointing to that. That's an interesting finding. Yeah, that doesn't mean that all guys in a one night stand with a stranger situation don't want to please the woman. But there's certainly more guys finding themselves in that situation who are not very interested in pleasing the woman than there are women in the same situation not interested in pleasing the guy. So that obviously is directly contributing to her lack of positive experience with this. So even if you are never going to see her again, even if you just met her an hour ago, try to please her. Try to do things sexually and otherwise that are going to hopefully giving her some satisfaction. 
go down on her, finger her, do things or ask her what she wants and, and how she would like to have sex, not just have her do the things that you want. Again, women are less likely to be sexually assertive in these situations. This maybe comes down a bit to objectifying the level of objectifying you have around you when you're having sex with someone versus making a mutual experience between you and her. Because when you're having sex with someone, it's like a team sport, right? And it's much better when it's like that. But otherwise, you could be pushing someone around and just it's more of an objective thing. And it's more about just getting off, I guess, rather than the actual experience itself. So would that tie in anywhere with the fact that you're looking for new experiences? Or is it like a deeper level of experience versus some people might be autonomous and just looking for experience like, oh, like I'm with a redhead tonight. You know, I'm happy with that because I haven't been with a redhead tonight versus something I mean, a bit more deeper. I think that's fine. But when you're with that redhead, you know, give as much of yourself as you can to that experience because it's going to make it better for you, too. It's going to make for a better experience than basically having a flashlight that you're human flashlight, right, that you're just masturbating with. It is more pleasurable for both people when you're more involved and more giving, when both people are more giving. But it's certainly going to make it a more a better experience for her. And that's just nice. It's just being a decent human being. Well, the quality of sex is definitely much better when they were giving. So it makes no sense not to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because... and oftentimes I've heard guys, that's come up in research as well, yeah. that guys will, in those very casual contexts, with people that they don't know very well um, or they haven't had sex with prior or many times before, they're trying to keep it casual. So because of that, oh. they are holding back. They're being very detached from the experience. And some of the most common complaints on the Casual Sex Project from women when this happens is, guys, I know it's casual, but you're making it a crappy experience for me because you're not really into it. I'm not going to get all attached just because you gave me this great attention and you made me come three times in this one hour. I'm still going to know that it's casual. So make it a, a more pleasant, fun experience for both of us. And that's actually something that guys usually understand as they get older. So I don't, I'm not sure what age demographic your listeners are, but we do find this both in anecdotal experience and in some research that as they get older, as they get out of that 18 to 25, especially post-college um, age, yeah. guys actually learn that if I'm more respectful and more loving in the moment, even if it's just for one hour, even if I'm never going to see her again, it's going to be a better experience. And they start doing that more. I also think some of it's not necessarily like this not wanting to commit, like you say, not wanting it to be seen as anything more than casual, being scared of that. It's also, I think, shyness as well. But a lot of guys, the way they do with shyness is kind of being a bit cold. Mm, yeah, that's the other side of that coin. Yeah, but there's no need for it. Right. You're here, you have this one hour, one night, whatever whatever it is that you have. Make the most out of it. Now you're there, you're in bed together, you're in a very intimate situation. You can either give yourself fully to that experience and make the most mm -hmm. of it, or you can be withdrawn in it and you're just detracting from the whole experience. If you're going to yeah. be there, it's like with everything else in life, be 100% there <laughs> and just give it your all. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, you're already there naked. It's happening. So <laughs> make it the best that it could possibly be. <laughs> and again, even that's not a guarantee. You still might end up being bad sex. You still might end up hurting the person or they end up hurting you in some way or whatever. But increase your chances of having a good positive experience. Yeah, you. it gives you more chance of having a big upside. So we talked about alcohol and drugs there. Is condom use, does that make a difference? Like if, if I use a condom in casual sex versus not, is that going to make a difference to the girl? Well, it's certainly going to make a difference if... Uh, she gets pregnant. It, it, it's the difference between getting pregnant or not. Or, Putting you know, that not. aside, say nothing <laughs> physical happens, 
STI or my feeling was that because women do have this aspect, we can both get STIs, but mm-hmm. uh, she can get pregnant, which right. is a bigger thing. So mm-hmm. when you were talking about women are often less satisfied of casual sex, I was thinking, well, perhaps that's just biological because she's kind of worried that she might be pregnant now. It could be those ones that didn't use condoms. There's that anxiety bringing down a satisfaction level. Absolutely, yes. And the anxiety is higher in women because they're more at risk. And even for some SDIs, the transmission from men to women is much riskier and higher than from women to men. Oftentimes, men are asymptomatic carriers of diseases. They don't even know they have them, but the woman will get it. So certainly for things like HIV, the risk of of transmitting HIV is twice, three times higher from male to female than female to male. So women are at higher risk of both STIs and obvious pregnancy expected that their anxiety will be higher so yes always carry a condom on you always always oh yeah Yeah. (laughs) definitely guys you should have two in your wallet that's been my case for 20 years or so and uh, it's always very helpful (laughs) it also depends on some people are just more anxious about these things some people are less anxious so the more anxious you are obviously the more important it is to use a condom but yes, that's absolutely one thing that's going to improve your chances of having a good experience for both of you that's going to be safe. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for going uh, through this topic. Is there anything we've missed that you know, has been really interesting about this well-being and casual sex research? I don't know. I think we've covered a lot. Great. Are there any gaps or what do you think is the future going to hold next 10 years in research in this area? Are there interesting things, anything you want to talk about or gaps that you wish could be filled and maybe would be filled later. Anything interesting about where you would hope the research goes in the future or could go? Wow, there's so so many things that we don't know, so many gaps that need to be filled. Some of the things are really getting to the bottom of this casual sex well-being link and what are all the different things that make a difference. Because we've been asking that very simple question, is casual sex bad for your health or not for 15 years now? And I think we now know that if you just look at that simple Length, the, the answer is no, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't have an effect that is the same yeah. for everyone. But now we really have to look at these factors on, on which that link depends on. And autonomy or pleasure is maybe just one of those links, but there are so many other things that we still haven't explored that this might depend on. Another thing is really learning more about casual sex in non-college students and people who are beyond that 18 yeah. to 25 age range and also in other racial and ethnic uh, backgrounds in a more cross-cultural perspective. I'm guessing um, there hasn't been much research done in other countries outside the US or the UK. No, yeah. there really hasn't been much. Some on the, the other Western countries like the UK, Canada, Australia, but yeah. very, very little in other cultures. And granted, in other cultures, it may have a very different meaning. And uh, the same thing that we're talking about be a different thing in non-Western cultures. So um, that requires a whole other set of assumptions and theories and methods to cover. But I'm really fascinated by casual sex in midlife and older age and what happens there. And and that is something that the West hasn't um, explored much of yet. But we know that it doesn't end with guys and girls in their 20s. A lot of people are doing it afterwards because we're going through all these transitions. You know, people are getting divorced, cheating, um, opening up their relationships. And all of that is happening uh, now a lot more than it was in the past. So we need to focus on that more. Yeah, I think there's some very interesting trends going on there. As you say, divorce Mm -hmm. has become pretty much the norm. There's mm-hmm. a lot more cheating. These are the fair dating websites. And my own experiences is women say over the age of 30 on Tinder and OkCupid, they're very straightforward. Right. 
compared to the younger women, it's, it's a very different experience and they're very much more comfortable with casual sex. I, I put it that way. It seems that way. We have some evidence to suggest women in their 30s and late 20s, 30s and early 40s are certainly a lot more thinking more about sex, more comfortable with casual sex. They're oftentimes discovering their sexuality really for the first time because uh, maybe they were in a very long term relationship or got into a marriage, someone who was their first partner and who wasn't a very good or positive sexual partner. And so for the first time, they're going into this new world of of, uh, dating and casual sex. So there's certainly a lot going on there that we need to know more about. Who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area of dating sex relationships? Are there any researchers that you watch or people you respect for their advice or anything? Anyone you respect? Wow, there's so many. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Justin Miller, who was up until very recently at Harvard, who runs the, who writes the blog, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. Uh, he's been also studying um, hookups and, and friends with benefits, relationships and writing a lot about sexuality. So yeah, he's someone that I, I often read and respect as a scholar. Terry Conley at University of Michigan is someone who's been studying non-monogamy, who's actually kind of leading the research in consensual non-monogamy for the last five years or so. So she's definitely someone um, to look out for. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> if there's your top two or your, or your top three, it's great. Those are certainly my top two um, academics. Um, also, Owen, if you want to talk about casual sex, uh, Jesse Owen um, at University of, oh my God, I want to say Kentucky, but it could be Kansas. I don't know. Those two states, sorry, guys, are kind of mixed up in my head. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there have been a number of, of researchers doing great research on casual sex and non-monogamy lately. Great, great. Great to hear there's more work being done. Mm-hmm. Just a couple of personal questions to get to know you. I mean, you can say no to these if you want. What has been your greatest relationship conflict? It was probably about monogamy and the level the level of monogamy or non-monogamy um, would be or should be incorporated in my relationships. But that's all I'm going to tell you. Okay, that's great. So <laughs> defining the boundaries of where monogamy is and what we're allowed to do versus not, which is a very yeah. common kind of struggle between people. Uh, and yes. something that's not often communicated very well. Yeah, and that's really the, the, the saddest part is that people kind of just accept the norms or the expectations that have been set for them and they rarely discuss and examine these things. Yeah. But they're really important to be examined in a relationship. Talk about that and kind of figure out what you want and what your partner wants and find common ground. Not easy all the time. What has become more important to you in recent years in this area compared to before? You're in your 30s now, maybe in your 20s. Is there What was like the biggest change for you? In terms of the way you look at dating, sex and relationships, this whole aspect of your life, is, is there been one particular thing that changed for you over that time? Mm. Oh, I don't know. That's, that's a tough question. I mean, I we always change. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, we, we always change, right? Yeah. My struggle has been between polyamory and monogamy. So I did polyamory for a while, and then I decided for a few reasons that it wasn't right for me. I mean, I started with monogamy and I was kind of unconscious monogamy. <laughs> and then, and I consciously chose polyamory. And then after a while, I decided it was having negative effects on my life that I didn't like. So I went to monogamy again. Now I'm kind of at this point where I'm figuring it out. I'm like, oh, I got all those experiences. Now I can decide what I consciously want to do. And Are you still happy with monogamy? I've been thinking about how I could fit either into my lifestyle now and what I want. And I think basically it comes down to if I meet the right person, I'll do the monogamy thing. 
But if I don't, I'll stick with the polyamory thing until that happens. And I'm okay with that. And I'm going to, you know, I'm happy with it. And it fits with my lifestyle the way I'm, I'm structuring it for better words, uh, rather right. than it was interfering with my life and some of the things I, I liked and, and so on. When you say polyamory, are you, you really mean polyamory or are you that a uh, it's, it's, it's a loose, it's casual sex, but I don't do one night stands. I tend to see people for a while. So it's more like a polyamory thing than casual sex, I guess. Right, right. That's the other thing. There's so many different types of non-monogamy. There's not one way of doing it. There's not one uh, relationship arrangement that is a non-monogamous type. People can organize that in so many different ways. I, I often like, when I talk about this, I often like to say, it's like the opening lines of uh, Anna Karenina's Tolstoy's book, which says all happy families are happy in the same way. All, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And it's kind of applicable to... Uh, monogamous and non-monogamous relationships. You know, all monogamous relationships are monogamous in the same way. There's only one rule. You don't do anything with anyone else. But all non-monogamous relationships are non-monogamous in their own way because there's so many different ways, so many different sure. rules that you have. And, you know, are you allowed to speak with friends versus non-friends? Are you allowed to have casual sex or long-term partners? How often are you supposed to do it? Where? what kind of behaviors you're allowed to engage and not engage in and yeah. um, so on. So Yeah, we've yeah. discussed the complexities of establishing boundaries and figuring that out and how different relationships, it is more complicated. You have to really know what you want. That's kind of where I feel like I am right now. I can just say, hey, this is how things are for me. If you're not happy with that, then maybe this right. isn't a good idea. But if you are okay with that, then... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. it's good to know what you want and what's going to work for you and what doesn't. It takes time to figure it out. It's not like, Absolutely. and it takes a whole bunch of relationships as well and having things go wrong. And it's, it's difficult to start with a perfect blueprint or anything. It's, it's kind of something you have to learn uh, through trial and error for most people, I think, because it's about self-expression or self-awareness and understanding what works with your life. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it does take trial and error and many, sometimes many relationships. Sometimes you can do it in the same, in the same relationship. You try different things. Yeah. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I think that might even be necessary these days. If you're going to have a 20-year, 30-year relationship, I do think that some aspects of it have to evolve over time because we change so much these days. We're exposed to so many more learning experiences and experiences that change us over time, so many different jobs and all sorts of things change us in our lives. Around, travel, yeah. Right, right. We travel. And so all these things can open us up and change us over time. And so I think it's really, it's mandatory to have that kind of perspective about relationship and like to not just say like, oh, we got married. It's going to be like this for the rest of our lives. Um, That's kind of a recipe for disaster in even just three years, maybe. Yeah, it's unrealistic to expect that things are going to stay the same. And you have to be open to exploring and having things change over time. Great. Okay, last question. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. So uh, top three recommendations to help men get results as fast as possible with women. What would the pieces of advice (laughs) be from you? Success? That's so broad. Yes, it's it's meant to be broad. It's like anything that you have top of mind. What are your top three suggestions? They're going to be just as broad as your question, but it's basically be honest <laughs> and don't lie, don't don't mislead. Be honest, uh, be respectful. I just I interrupt you for a second. You're the first person to tell me that was a bad question. <laughs> no, no, it's not a bad question. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> it's not a bad question. It's a broad question. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> so no, anyway, number two. Sorry for interrupting. Uh, respect. What would be number three? Be good at it learn about yeah. what gets women off, what makes them happy, and then give it to them. Uh, I mean, be a good lover. Look good, too. Uh, that's easier for some than for others, but um, 
try putting some time and effort into um, your appearance. That would be number four. So number yeah. Number one is honest, two, respectful, three, you say, oh, uh, be a good lover, um, and an open-minded lover, that someone that they can feel like they can explore with and that encourages them to explore rather than get closed off. And, yeah. and then four, focus. That's great. Great. Thank you for those. <laughs> I hope that that's helpful. <laughs> Oh, I'd say that a third point is extremely, uh, it's extremely important. Keep an open mind and always be learning, basically, mm-hmm. so, so you can be better at this. Yeah, it makes, makes all the difference. Yeah, thank you very much for your time today as well, Jana. It's Fine. been a great chat, really enjoyed it myself, right. and, you know, all these ideas, which are kind of counterintuitive about the casual sex area, which normally people think casual sex, you know, they say it's bad, but obviously your research points in a different direction. Yeah, it doesn't have to be. It all depends on who you are and how you do it. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life, step by step, episode by episode. Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.